My name is Sister Prince, and today is July 20th, 1987. I am interviewing Charles Oldham for the Black History Project of the Missouri Historical Society. We will explore Charles's experience in the 40s and 50s as a lawyer who was an integral part of the civil rights movement, not only in St. Louis, but also on a national level. Marion Oldham, Charles's wife, who in her own right was active in civil rights, will be part of this interview. Is it moving? Yes. Oh. Um, she said, Marion said you were at Washington U when they integrated it. As a no, I was there before they integrated. Uh, but I came there in 45. As a student? As a student. Actually, it was 46. I was entered the law school. Uh -huh. And they, I was a member of the American Veterans Committee. And one of the things that the American Veterans Committee was talking about was the admission of Negroes to Washington University. And we actually formed a committee for the admission of Negroes to Washington University. And I remember we had a rather small committee, as it was, but there were some people from ABC on it and uh, some other individuals in from. American Veterans, Veterans. Okay. American Veterans Committee, and uh, some other individuals on the campus who were interested mm -hmm. in it. I don't think they ever had over 10 or 12, maybe 15 people mm -hmm. uh, involved in this particular project. And we did a number of things. Uh, we talked to the chancellor. We met with the chancellor's wife, who was really very sympathetic towards the, um, gee, what was his name? Arthur Compton. Arthur Holly Compton. Arthur Holly Compton, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, his wife was very nice and very sympathetic, and uh, I think we had tea over at her house a couple of times mm -hmm. uh, because we had approached uh, people in the, on the uh, university campus. And I remember Merle Kling, who is now holding a different position with the college, but he at that time was sort of an outspoken activist, professor, or instructor. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's, as I remember, uh, spoke a couple of times at the groups and uh, about, about the mission of Negroes to Washington University. And I used the term Negroes because that was a term that was used at that exactly. time. And we even had some debates. And uh, some of the law students, I remember Hamilton McCoy was one took the opposite view, and we had a debate before a small group, maybe 16 or 20 people, <laughs> and we had about four people up on the stage. And I think that was done at the uh, Brown School of Social Work. Anyway, uh, we were not successful at that stage of the proceedings. Were you aware that? Uh, there was a drive on to from outside, like David Grant, to. to well, I knew that there were uh, other individuals who were working on the same thing and mm -hmm. in the community level. We were just a student group, mm -hmm. and uh, if I remember correctly, Maggie Dagan was, I think at that time she was teaching at Clayton Schools, I believe so. But anyway, she gave us support, and we were. Occasionally would meet over at her house. She had uh, 
meetings, I think, on a Tuesday night, if I remember correctly. And you discussed topics of interest, and admission of Negroes was one of the topics that we discussed. Anyway, we were, by the time I graduated, we were not successful. Who uh, and when did you graduate? Let's see. I graduated uh, in January of 48. So they were admitted, I guess, towards the end of 48 in the graduate school. I think that uh, some of the graduate school, I think that there were some Negroes in the graduate school in 40, in the fall of 47. Now, I may be wrong about that. Charles, what did people say when you tried to involve oh, you know, them in it? Or you know, the, the world isn't ready for this, and uh, the time's not ripe, and you're going too fast, and uh, uh, one of these days this will be accomplished, and uh, or that's for the liberals, and for the others, uh, they you know it's direct opposition, and uh, Negroes were in a fear of race, and they really couldn't get involved in higher education, etc. Some people are just, just outright bigots and say, I don't want them sitting in the classroom next to me. And, and are you from St. Louis? No. Where are you from? I'm from a small town. Um, actually, I was raised on a farm south of Marceline, Missouri, about three miles south of Marceline. Mm -hmm. and, uh, my mother was a teacher at the school. And did you come to St. Louis? Came to St. Louis after the war, and primarily I applied to Michigan Law School and to Washington University Law School, and some other place. Mm -hmm. And Washington University wrote me first and said I could enter. Mm -hmm. So that's how I happened to come to St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Had you always been interested in as as civil rights or furthering well, Negroes? Well, not really. What uh, made you? I don't know. It was a, a number of things. War experiences had something to do with it. And uh, I ran into a member of the CP on the way back from uh, the Philippines by the name of Larry Northwood. And he was looking around for recruits. and while he wasn't very successful in recruiting. He did talk about the uh, matters involving blacks and Negroes in the United States, and I felt that he was right on that issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, and he would, later became a member of the American Veterans Committee, and they formed a chapter away from the Washington University. But anyway, that's. Mm -hmm one of the first persons that I remember that uh, we really talk seriously about discrimination and the effects on minorities and the effects on Negroes. Well, so that's that's Washington U. And then um, what, what happened for you next? Well, I think that during that Washington U experience I had some experience in going to the International House, uh, which was operated by the, by the Episcopal Church downtown uh, Christ Church Cathedral. Mm -hmm. and actually, I met Marion there. Probably it was in 49. And uh, we played bridge down there. She just happened to be one of the individuals that 
Faith Bridge, and there were some other individuals that I met there. And it was an interracial group, and it was a very interesting group, and I enjoyed that experience a great deal. So that was something else that influenced me in whatever we were doing. Uh, also, while I was at Worcester University, a lady by the name of Bernice Fisher, who was with the uh, Teamsters, organizer for the Teamsters, and had been in Chicago and involved in the formation of the original core group, Congress for Racial Equality. And she visited the campus uh, to talk about organizing a core group on campus. And I think at that time we, I know at that time we actually had a sit-in at uh, the Forum Cafeteria. And this would be, this would have to be 48. 1948 mm -hmm. that we had the first sit-in, and uh, was probably in the summer of 48. What was that like? Well, it was January 48, it was in the summer of 47. Mm -hmm. And we took a substantial group of people down there, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20, uh, about seven or eight blacks and the rest whites. Mm -hmm. And uh, we sat in at the formed cafeteria and uh, a refused service and nothing happened and uh, after about a couple of hours I think we left and there was no particular newspaper publicity on it but anyway that was the beginning of my experiences with CORE, my first CORE experience and shortly after that I graduated uh, member so that I think there were only one or two demonstrations that I was involved with and that would have been in 47 in the city of St. Louis, and both of them were directed at eating establishments. And I know one was a forum, and it seems to me that the other was uh, some other smaller cafeteria. Uh, maybe it was Woolworth, or I really don't remember the name of it. Uh, I know that the cafeteria is closed now. Mm -hmm. Hopes. No, it wasn't Pope's. Uh, that came later. There was another cafeteria. There was terrible food there anyway. Yeah, well, most cafeterias had terrible food. The forum had the best cockroaches in town. <laughs> um, all right, so I, I don't know why. I guess I'm, the Corps started in, in the 40s? Oh, yeah, it started before the war. Well, uh, Corps was formed by Jim Farmer, Lula Farmer, Jim Robinson, Bernice Fisher was involved in it, and uh, George Hauser, who was a Quaker. And it started in Chicago, and I guess it started during the war, 1943, and they had some sit-ins at some restaurants in Chicago, and uh, there was some violence, etc., but ultimately they were successful. And uh, so, from that Chicago group came the core organization, and they went out and organized some chapters, and St. Louis was one of the places I came to. Mm -hmm. uh, New York was one of the early chapters too. Mm -hmm. But it started in Chicago. So you you got heavily involved quickly. Well, no, I got involved in the committee for admission to Negroes to University and the uh, core demonstrations uh, in '47 and. And I graduated in 48 and went to work for a law firm. And uh, 
I think that, oh, after I'd been there maybe six or seven months or something like that, a fellow by the name of Joe Ames, who I had met when I was in law school and had been active on the committee for the admission of Negroes to Washington University, came by and talked to me about working with the St. Louis Core Group. And mm -hmm. This was a group that had started, or at least had some organizational impetus when I was in the uh, law school. And so I started, attended a few meetings and became very interested in it. And, remained with CORE from, say, 49 on up until 1964-65. So there was a period there, I guess, of 15, 16 years when I was very active in the Congress of Racial Equality. What was it like to be in the beginning of something here? It was very interesting and it was uh, a good, good experience. It had its moments of uh, concern, I think. Though mm -hmm. so I'll have to admit that I never really felt threatened in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. uh, there were times when I was other places that I felt, you know, threatened for personal safety, but I really had no real concern about the situation in St. Louis. Now, maybe it's because I wasn't very bright or didn't know enough about or Maybe I'm in curable optimist, but anyway, uh, that was the situation in, in St. Louis at that time. That people who were who were opposed to what you were doing were disgusted and etc. You know, et and there were some threats of violence, but uh, they really, for the most part, weren't prepared to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Now we did have a couple instances with the Gerald L. K. Smith group. With the who? Gerald K. Smith group. Gerald K. Smith which was the local fascist organization. Mm -hmm. And uh, they attacked some of our members a couple of times. And, uh, when they were at sit-ins? Uh, sit-ins and at the demonstrations. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember one time that uh, Marvin Rich got hit over the head with a lead pipe rolled in a magazine. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not good. And uh, he got a headache out of that, but we had gotten on it streetcar, we'd been downtown on a demonstration, and we got on a streetcar, and as he was getting on the streetcar, he was hit, and so we looked out, and they were following us in, the, mm -hmm. in a car. The streetcar stopped at Jefferson Avenue, which at that time was in the heart of the black community. Mm -hmm. So Joe Ames and Marvin, Rich and I got off the streetcar and went into the deluxe restaurant, which was the place where all blacks of any particular note in the community gathered, mm -hmm. and the politicians and the uh, people from the train station, there were a lot of porters and uh, brakemen who stopped by there. And it was sort of a social gathering place and an eating place. Hanging out, as they say today. Well, they sort of people hung out there. They didn't serve any liquor or anything like that, it was just yeah. food. But people would go there to talk. and. Uh, the deluxe restaurant was one place in town at that time where you could go and get all the information about what was going on in the black community. Anyway, we got out there and stopped there and had dinner and then we went on up to Buster Brown's joint, which was forgotten the name of the place. Uh, and we sat there and drank and enjoyed ourselves and finally went home. But the 
Gerald K. Smith group did not stop in the black community. They went on wherever they were going. Um, so what was next? You were in a law firm? I was with Old Camp and Miller, and they were very nice people, except they didn't pay any money. And I think it was something like $75 a month. And I just felt I was worth more than that. And I started looking around for another job, and I ended up working for the um, Office of Rent Control, which is a federal agency. And I stayed with that agency until Marion and I married, which would be 51. And uh, when I became active in CORE, I met Marion, and we started, after a while, I started dating. Courting. Courting, yes. I guess we courted heavy for two years. And uh, I remember, and this is sort of a personal thing, but I uh, had we been courting for two years. By one time, Mary looked at me and said, Charlie, are you serious? And I kept thinking about it. Was I serious or wasn't I? And she says, you know, she's not getting any younger words to that effect, what exact words she used. And I think about that time, I thought, well, maybe I'd better propose or something if she's going to run off and leave me. So I did. <laughs> <laughs> and then we got married by, uh, the next fall, or the next summer, I guess, in August. Yes, and I know it's been 36 years. <laughs> yeah, we've been married for 36 years. <laughs> and you're well, so you were both involved. Yeah, we were both, was, both involved in CORE. And it was your in a way, uh, a great part of your life. You lived in Well, that was 16 years where we were involved on a day-to-day -day basis and uh, very heavily involved. I suppose we averaged maybe 20 hours a week or more. Uh, and maybe that's an understatement because the core group had meetings every Tuesday and we would plan projects for the, you know, coming week. Mm -hmm. For the coming week. You know, for that Saturday mm -hmm. and Sunday and whatever. Mm -hmm. One of the things we, one of the first things that we did uh, was to sit in sticks, you know, which lasted for something like 18 months. And we were down there forever. That was the lunch counter? At or? the lunch counter mm -hmm. sticks. And while we were doing that, we were doing some other things too. We were talking to other people. Uh, trying to change their thought patterns about uh, whether or not blacks and Negroes should be admitted to places of public accommodations. And, uh, we were talking to old theaters and to other restaurants and other cafeterias at the same time we were sitting in sticks, but we were, our prime demonstrations were there. And finally, uh, Maggie and Irv Dagan, who were very active in the thing. Maggie had some contacts in the uh, Jewish community, who which had contacts with the retail business. Mm -hmm. And it was suggested that if we would go off and leave Sticks alone for a little while, uh, so they could save face, that they might change their attitude. And so we said, fine, we, sitting in wasn't working all that great anyway. and. Uh, we decided to uh, go other places, and we started with Cats and Popes and Forum and uh, Famous Bar, 
and Sprogues and a number of downtown places. So. And what did Sticks do? Well. And you left them alone. We left them alone, I think, for about six months, and then they opened. They opened their first floor lunch counter, and then we had the second floor to worry about. And they, not the second floor; I think it was the sixth floor, yeah. like the restaurant. But. But it, but they did open. They up. did open, and um, they opened first at the lunch counter, and then a couple years later they opened upstairs. And meanwhile, we'd been to famous bar, and they opened their lunch counter downstairs, which was in the basement. And uh, we also talking to Kresge's and Woolworths. And I know that uh, I went to the home office of Kresge's, I think in Detroit at the time, and talked to the people up there. We formed some good relationships with those individuals, and also with individuals from Woolworths. They, Woolworths had their office in St. Louis. And uh, after they opened in St. Louis, they started by the time we had court groups in other places like New Orleans and uh, I remember New Orleans specifically. Anyway, we had started the process where we would do testing, where uh, we would go in by pre-arrangements and, and the Negroes would eat, uh, sometimes by themselves, sometimes accompanied by the whites, and see what sort of reaction would be to the, of the customers. And generally, there was no reaction. None. Uh, minimal reaction. We, it was reported back to Jim Lee, there was not much comment about it. Mm -hmm. And based upon the lack of comment or concern by the other citizens, uh, gradually they began to open these facilities after the testing. Uh, when they started down in New Orleans, they wanted to use the same process. And so I went down and met with the local group down there, and we worked out a schedule of testing. That work that did essentially in New Orleans what we'd done in St. Louis, but they were a couple of years behind. Is us. this when you were president of the You know, the uh, I don't like to give you time frames. Uh, I probably was had something to do with the local chapter, but we had a process in St. Louis Corps where every six months we changed officers, mm -hmm. and so practically everybody got a chance to be president mm -hmm. of St. Louis Corps and, or treasurer of St. Louis Corps or secretary of St. Louis Corps. Were you kind of the national? Yeah, I was elected in the national. must have been in oh, 57. That's my daughter going upstairs. My daughter going upstairs. But I think it was about 56 or 57 that I was elected national chairman of the Corps and I was national chairman of the Corps some seven or eight years. Did you bump into the NAACP when you were doing oh, things? Oh, yeah. We, uh, did you coordinate anything, or did well, you? Well, uh, How did that work? The NAACP was admired our efforts, but didn't want any part of it. And uh, they didn't want to be involved in such an activist group. And, uh, they felt that we were a little far out in this business about peaceful and nonviolent change. Uh, wasn't the real way to do it. It was to be done through legal process and whatever else was available. But certainly didn't involve sit-ins and demonstrations and direct action. And we decided it would be nice if we 
could involve the NAACP. And so we did the time audit thing. We got some of selected to the NAACP board. Mm -hmm. And uh, there we ran into opposition from such stalwart conservative individuals as Ernest Callaway and Ted McNeil and uh, Reverend Cook and whatnot. Why did they? Well, they wanted they, for themselves? No, no, no. They were not believers in the nonviolent direct, direct action technique. And uh, they felt that we really didn't understand what we were doing, didn't know that we would really not be a good influence. And so. Well, they picketed. Well, once in a while. Uh, you remember the first group that picketed around St. Louis was the Colored Clerk Circle. And that was Henry Winfield Wheeler and a few mm. other individuals. Uh, Talk about him. Well, Henry was a very remarkable person. He worked in the post office and was imbued with the spirit of uh, doing something about racial discrimination in the city. And, uh, he would picket at the drop of a hat, and he, on matters, uh, and he was an outspoken individual. Uh, you know, he was an angry black man before they became uh, accepted mm -hmm. and uh, all the thing to do. But I remember his, he picketed the American theater for years. And uh, I know that Marion used to go down and pick. That would be before I knew Marion, but you know I've heard about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Henry would, while not a member of Corps, would participate in the demonstrations. Uh, he would uh, show up in the demonstrations and carry a picket sign, or he would show up at uh, city and sit down. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to belong to anything, he just well, did. No, we we uh, tried to involve as many people as possible. How did you do that, John? Well, we did it mostly by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. uh, during the sit-ins at Sticks, we would get as many as 125, 130 people down there. Mm -hmm. That would, they would take every other seat and uh, we really would sort of fill up the uh, all the seating space down there. And we would explain to people and hand out leaflets and, uh, about what we were doing. And particularly, we'd try to orient people who were coming down working with us. We would explain to them about nonviolence and that they were not to react in any way if somebody was angry, etc. They were, to, you know, so that. And what we tried to do, if a new person came in, then one of the older core group members would move over and sit so that there'd be an empty seat in between them, but they could talk. Mm -hmm. And the person was charged with responsibility of telling how we conducted ourselves and how we wanted the demonstration to go. And uh, we've had occasions when somebody would come down. I remember one time a fellow came down, and uh, he also had a rolled-up magazine with an iron pipe inside of it, and I became aware of it. And so I went up and talked to him and said, you know, we really can't have you here. You've got to leave. And 
So I'll be there. That's all there was to it. Was it hard for people to trust you? Being no, I did not have that problem during the, that period of time. Uh, no, the, now, if a white person goes in the black community, he's got to be very cautious and very careful. And, uh, he's got to recognize that he's maybe subject to an attack or anything like that, mm -hmm. merely because he's white, because now there is a different feeling. And at that time, though, I didn't, what many place in St. Louis that I went, and I went to many, many places in the black community, that I didn't feel perfectly safe and comfortable. Mm -hmm. And they were glad to have your help? They were glad to, glad to see me, glad to have the help, and uh, glad to see what whites participate. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the 60s that uh, they developed this whole black movement. You see, the philosophy of CORE was that it required an interracial movement. It couldn't be all black or all white. It had to be an interracial movement in order to succeed, in order to affect the changes we wanted about. Because mm -hmm. we felt that it was an entire problem faced the entire community and took all facets of the community to make the changes. And so one of the tenets of our organization was, in addition to the nonviolent direct action, and, uh, et cetera, was that it had to be an interracial effort. And uh, first, when we first started out, we had difficulty getting blacks to participate with us. Uh, I think because all they were concerned about the situation, they felt that they might be subjected to more violence, one thing or another. And secondly, because this was sort of a foreign idea to many of them, the idea of the use of nonviolent direct action techniques to solve social problems. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I digress. No, 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 no. I like to hear that. Uh, and I, and I, we don't, we don't, I, it, it's good to, to have that explanation. Um, I'm thinking in terms of the difference between the Urban League and the, still the NAACP, who who wasn't a, a flamboyant, uh, nor but they didn't have whites involved. No, the uh, let's take the Urban League, which uh, did have whites. Mm -hmm. Did have they did? Yes, but the uh, NAACP. But uh, the Urban League's approach was substantially different. They talked in terms of business and jobs and one thing or another, and originally their emphasis was on obtaining jobs for Negroes and what were considered to be appropriate jobs for Negroes, uh, custodians and uh, mm -hmm. domestic servants, and uh, as time changed, uh, the post office and uh, some of the federal jobs that became open. Driving, milk, mm -hmm. the dairies. Dairy, milk, things of this nature. Uh, but, so that their emphasis was primarily on employment and not from direct action, but from some sort of a business persuasion mm -hmm. and uh, relying upon the goodwill, good efforts of individuals. Uh, but it was a very soft sell and uh, proposition. Mm -hmm. And 
generally the finances were controlled by the white community and the business white community, so they weren't going to do too much. Uh, NAACP was a black organization run by blacks, for blacks, primarily dedicated to the legal approach. So, legal approach that they, they used. I think the legal approach more than anything else. And you know, they had great success in their legal approach. They mm -hmm. talked about accomplishing these changes through the courts and they did a great deal. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to look at the steady progression of cases in terms of housing, Shelley versus Kramer and the number of Swiss versus Oklahoma, some of the others. Mm -hmm. We're gonna get into that. Uh, that were Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I wanted to, and then you had the political, the black political structure. So you really had like four different yeah. large areas in the 40s and 50s that were working towards somewhat the same goal. Yeah. One of the things that we as court did, we really got involved in the political process. And the extent to which we involved was really substantial. Uh, we were trying to get a public accommodation ordinance passed in the city of St. Louis. And I want to be sure. We would talk to the various aldermen and try to get them committed towards passing a public accommodations bill. Mm -hmm. We finally became convinced that it was necessary to elect some blacks to the board of aldermen and increase the black representation down there. So the first person that we really tried to elect was Bill Clay. And I acted as Bill Clay's first campaign manager when he ran for the Board of Aldermen. And uh, it was a very successful campaign. Uh, I think we spent a total of about $800 on that campaign. And he ended up winning the thing. He won over Bill Brady, who was really a very fine person. and. Uh, there was uh, somebody else at Tozier ran, I forgot his name, but he was black also, and he got about 500 votes. Bill Brady got about 18, 800 votes, and Bill Clay got 12 or 1,400 votes. And I remember Bill Brady came by the ramshackle headquarters, which we had, and congratulated Bill Clay on his victory, and wished him the best. So I thought that was very nice of him. Bill was a real, real, real true gentleman, a great person. And, uh, I think we all liked him, except we felt there was a, he wouldn't vote for public accommodations bill. And we thought it was necessary to replace him. And the 26th war at that time looked like the ideal place, mm -hmm. and it was. And from there we went to the 20th ward and the 21st ward, and resulted in replacement to those individuals. So that we were able to get three new individuals on the three blacks, three additional blacks on the board of Alderman. That's quite a game. Yeah, that was quite a game. And uh, there was a very fabulous person who was involved in this. This is Pops Chambers. Jordan Chambers. Yeah, Jordan Chambers. Uh, who was probably the greatest politician that the black community has had. He certainly dominated for many, many years the political structure 
in the black community and controlled all the jobs at Henry Phillips and all the jobs in the police department. And you had to go through him in order to get jobs in any one of those facilities. And I'm sure there were other jobs. And I remember this committee woman, uh, for years and years, stayed in the ward working, and never went to her job, but her paycheck was always sent out to her. Do you know who it was? Pardon? Do you know who it was? I forgot her name. She was a very nice lady. But uh, who was uh, Jordan Chambers' committee woman for many, many years? Hmm. Anyway, I, I forgot her name. Uh, Fred, Fred, Fred Weathers was. Uh, there was Olivia Callaway. There's Olivia Callaway, but she was. Uh, she didn't. She was not. Didn't last long. Well, no, she wasn't a. Uh, during that period of time. Uh, I don't think so either. Have you told about your trip to Mississippi to get the Oh, the children, children out of the plantation? I think that's significant in terms of early, early. Okay. Gee, we were living on uh, Terry at that, Terry Avenue. It must have been around 51, 52. Yes. Probably 52 because I think we moved over. It was 52. And anyway. That was an NAC. I, I was on the NAACP board at the time. And you were working too at the same time. I mean, yeah. you were a lawyer. Yeah, I was working for the officer. No, I had stopped working for them and I was working for the standard, standard life insurance, the standard accident life insurance. Yeah, we're very had. busy people. Uh, anyway. The jobs are sort of secondary, and they really would have been great to uh, But you I was very to, interested. You just had to eat. I'm very interested in the core and what we were doing. But anyway, I was serving on the board of the NAACP at the time. And there was a complaint came in the office about a lady who had moved to St. Louis and tried to bring her children up with her after she had moved here. And Appeared that she owed money to the owner of the plantation, and he wrote her a little note saying that since she paid all the money, he would let her children come. Mm -hmm. And she came down to NAACP. And really, she came because her employer uh, pushed her. She couldn't read or write, couldn't even tell time. Uh, she'd never been to school. And all she knew was that she really wanted her kids to come up here, and uh, they weren't. The note had come from her plantation where she'd formerly been a short share proper and that she still owed some money to the plantation store. Mm -hmm. It amounted to about 50 bucks, I think, and that she had to send the $50 before she could get the children. And so it came to me, and I, I was on the legal committee at the NAACP, and it was referred to me for possible legal action. And I looked at it and I said, that doesn't make any sense. Just go down there and get the kids and bring them up. So I called the FBI office and said, uh, here's the situation. And I'm going down to pick up the kids and I think that this is a violation of somebody's rights. And uh, would you call down there and tell them I'm coming so we don't have any problems? So with that, I got on a train. Were they amenable to that? Well. They received it. I, 
the information. I told them I was going, and I said oh, there wouldn't be any problems while I was down there. So they didn't say what they were going to do. Anyway, I got on a train and went down to Jackson, Mississippi, and then rented a car. And I guess I drove some hundred miles or so up to this plantation. Went up and knocked on the door and said, I was so-and-so from St. Louis, and that I had come to pick up the children. And he said, oh, yes, here they are, and we've been expecting you. And with that, I took the two kids. And uh, we then, I guess I was closer to, I think I drove up to Memphis and left the uh, car there and took a train from Memphis into St. Louis. Or I, maybe I went back to Jackson. I, I've sort of forgotten. Mm -hmm. But I do know the kids had never been on a train before. Mm -hmm. and, um, they had never even seen showing them because while they were waiting. Yeah, well, we were. I'm still here. While we were. Uh, Come closer so we can hear you. Waiting these are, for these the, are cheap machines, they don't want to. While we were waiting for the train, uh, somebody came along. This was a white person said, uh, where, are the, where are the children going? And I explained the situation to them. And one lady gave them some chewing gum. And they were, you know, they looked at it, didn't really know what to do with it. And I had to show them. Mm -hmm. And this was a boy and a girl. And uh, so. They put all five pieces in their mouth at one time. It's like That's the immigrant story when they got the banana, they didn't know to peel it, you know. They, the whole time. But uh, anyway, we got on the train. And we came up to St. Louis. Arrived here on Mother's Day. And the lady met us at the station oh with her. It was Saturday before Mother's Day. It was it Saturday before Mother's Day? I guess it was Saturday before Mother's Day. And. Uh, Did you get in the $50? No, I didn't get in the Oh, you just went and got it? I just went and got it. No problem. Bullet. Everything went smoothly. I think the fact that I talked to the FBI ahead of time, mm -hmm. probably because he was expecting me. Mm -hmm. He had him ready. And he had him ready. There wasn't any problem. They, did, did you explain that your information from the Justice Department or from the FBI, from someone, was that someone had to make an attempt to get the children? Mm -hmm. And you had contacted by long-distance telephone. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I really had called a number of lawyers down in Jackson to see whether or not they would go out and make a request for the children. Nobody was willing to do that. Oh. Yeah, so I said, that's why I went Nobody, down. no one, after making many, many phone calls <laughs> over a period of months. Well, And people would weeks. say, well, I will think about it, or maybe I will, but no one would make the, no one would actually physically walk on the plantation and request the children. So that's when he... Was one experience. Uh, one of many. Let's, let's yeah. You talk about the freedom rights. Well, you know, the, there were really more than one freedom right. There was a 1946 freedom right. Tell me what a freedom right is. The freedom right is where a group of people decided to test the Jim Crow laws on transportation. And we got on buses and went south. And, uh, 
I think the first Freedom Ride was 1946. This was on the New York Court and uh, Jim Peck. But not here. No, no, that was out in New York. And they went through, uh, remember Raleigh and Charlotte and someplace else, and they ended up in South Carolina. Some of them ended up on the chain gang for uh, six months, this type of thing. And they could get off? Well, they were arrested for violating the Jim Crow laws and uh, were sentenced to six months on oh, the chain my. gang. I mean, that's not... Well, that was an interesting experience, and oh. they all said, and they, I think they were all glad to get back home after it was all over. Uh, You're familiar with the famous Freedom Ride? Yes. Well, this I was the first Freedom Ride. I thought you meant This was the first here. Freedom But ride. the ones out of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. yeah. You see, the Irene Morgan decision said that if you travel in, in, in Interesting. then you can ride and you can sit anywhere you want to sit. So. In order to test that from this location, we had to go to... We purchased tickets in East St. Louis. Illinois. We're going down to Memphis, as I remember, and uh, off on good old Greyhound. Mm -hmm. And we were testing the various stops to see whether or not they could eat in the restaurants and so on and so forth. Whenever the bus stopped. And the, I guess there were probably about 20 or 25 people that went on the ride, uh, whites and blacks. And I was following in my car, and I would follow the bus and when they get off and they'd see whether or not there was any problem so I could be available. We got down as far as Sykeston. Everybody got arrested in Sykeston. And uh, they had a nice little jail there that would hold maybe two or three prisoners. Mm -hmm. um, Sykeston was a place where they had the lynching many years ago. Uh, well, it, that's something I wanted to ask you about, too. Uh, well, that was in 46, I believe. No, no, I think the Sykeston incident was earlier than that. It's, uh, I guess. No, I think no, there I'm was a. About, no, they, they lynched somebody. It was 42. 1942, because yeah. I was in college mm -hmm. at the time. I was in college mm -hmm. at Central College, Fayette, Missouri. And I, that was my recollection that they had lynched this guy and burned him. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I think they put him on top of some sort of building to burn the whole damn building down. Well, it doesn't say that here, but they did burn him. They took him out of the uh, city, city hall jail. Anyway, that's. That's where when we got. When the group got to Sykeston. Yeah, when the group got to Sykeston. And uh, this was probably 1950. Well, this was in the 60s, but it was just before the regular freedom rides. And uh, so it probably in the spring, and the freedom rides were during the summers, about three or four months before the big freedom rides. And this was sort of a test that we were making in St. Louis to provide information our own purposes and also to provide some information that could be used in the, the larger field rides because they had been planned for that summer. So tell me what happened. So you got to Sykeston and then... Everybody got arrested and... Uh, for attempting to... to yeah, for well, they went into the uh, restaurant where the bus stopped and they were refused service and when they refused to leave they were all arrested and all taken down to jail. And I showed up down there and said I was their attorney and talked to the prosecuting attorney and to the judge. 
except for the chief of police. Everybody was very embarrassed about the situation. They had all these prisoners. They didn't know what to do with them. And finally, the prosecuting attorney came over and talked to me and said, uh, Mr. Oldham, he said, uh, could they put up a bond? And I said, no, nobody's got any money. And he said, we'd make it pretty low. And I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, $10 a piece. And uh, I, there are 26 of them. I said, that's $260. I said, nobody's got $260. He said, could you give me a check? And I said, I don't have $260 in my bank account. And he said, well, we'll just hold a check and just use it as a piece of paper. And I said, well, you give me a piece of paper telling you that I told you there wasn't any money in the bank account, and I'll give you a check for $260. So they signed a statement saying that I had informed them I had no money in the bank and that the check was no good. And I gave them a check for $260, and they released everybody. And about that time, Bill Chapman, who is a minister down at Trinity, Episcopal he's the Episcopal Church, he had heard about the situation because it's become celebrate about town because we've been they've been arrested about 4:30 in the afternoon and by seven o'clock everybody in town knew what happened and so he came down to the, to the jail and said you know what can we do for you and I said well he said everybody's still hungry and so he invited us all up to the church for a meal and there was a bus coming back to St. Louis, I think, about 11 o'clock at night. And so we all went to the church and had dinner. Uh, it was served by the white parishioners and uh, Bill Chapman. And then when the time came for the, they took us down to the bus station. We got on the bus and came back to St. Louis. And everybody ended up sleeping in the living room in there. I think we had I don't know, 25 people sleeping in the house that one night. You ought to write a book. Really, I mean, you have seen and done so many things. Well, I think you ought to tell her about the Eats Bridge, because that was just last week. Yeah, I would like to. Tell me about it, and then we'll go back. But I, I would like to hear about that. Well, Eats Bridge. And, and thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I digress into the present, because Eats Bridge is an ongoing situation. Um, I think this was on a Friday. I got up and I read the newspaper and it said that each bridge had been closed. I said, Jesus, that's strange. I said, uh, why are they doing that? I read a little further and I said, it became obvious that they were trying to keep blacks out of, from East St. Louis. Blacks were coming over to the Bale Prophet Parade. Mm -hmm. They didn't want them circulating in the crowd down there. And I went downtown and started thinking about it some more. And there's a fellow that has his office right next door to mine, a fellow by the name of Lewis Gilden. And I went in and talked to Lewis about it, and we both agreed that something ought to be done. And we said, who in the hell can we get for a plaintiff? And then we thought about Johnny Scott over on the east side. And his name was in the paper. His name was in the paper. Yeah, we would call Johnny Scott and talk to him and said, you know, we think something ought to be done. Are you interested in playing up in a lawsuit? He's the president of NACP. Thank you. And so 
He said, yes. He said, I, we need to do something. And I had no idea what to do until you called me. I said, well, you come over and sign a paper authorizing us to represent you and we go ahead. So that uh, I began preparing the petition and Lou began uh, talking to the various judges trying to get them to open the courthouse on either Friday or Saturday mm -hmm. so that we could file the because the courthouse was closed Friday, it was a holiday, and Saturday was the 4th of July, etc., and uh, there was nobody there. So Lou called John Nangle uh, and talked to him. He's the senior judge. And the senior judge said, of course, I will hear the thing. And uh, he said, well, I'll have to open the courthouse on Saturday, and I'll have to make arrangements to get the clerk down there, and I'll have to get the marshals down there, and we'll have to get a court reporter, all that sort of stuff. And he said that I've got to be down there for a swearing in of the aliens. Uh, they're going to be sworn in at 12 o'clock, and Judge Berger is there. And he said, uh, maybe you'd like Judge Berger to hear the case. And, uh, and how we said we would prefer him. Yeah, uh, prefer an angle. Yeah, so anyway, uh, the courthouse opened specifically for us at 10 o'clock. We went over and filed the lawsuits. And the clerk over there couldn't have been nicer and very accommodating. Fourth of July, all these people are mm -hmm. yeah. back to work. Right. All right. supposed um, to be a holiday. There's one lady who had supposed to was supposed to participate in the swearing in of the, uh, yeah. the naturalization mm -hmm. program, and she couldn't do that because she was up there messing with us. And anyway, we got the attorney for the Terminal Railroad Bridge, and we got the attorney for the police board and we got the attorney, contacted the attorney for the Illinois State Police and uh, etc. They all showed up on Saturday for the hearing except the Illinois State Police. They didn't bother to attend. But the judge granted the injunction, gave us a temporary restraining order. And now the issue is whether or not we are entitled to a preliminary injunction and a permanent injunction later on. Um, we're going for a hearing on that tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. But the cost and the time were borne by Gilvin and Olga. And nobody else. They're well, somebody sent us $210. No, yeah. but I mean, you're the only people in the city. Who sent you what? Uh, well, Dan Shapley sent us 200 and somebody else sent us $10. How did they know? Oh, they knew. They saw Lou's name in the paper. And uh, so, anyway. But if it weren't for you, it wouldn't have been. Well, I mean, had it been for Mr. Gilder and myself, nothing would have been done. And uh, but anyway, we did it. And they always want to know what one man can do. What can one person do? Well, you know, one person can do quite a bit if they think about it and decide they want to do it and then proceed and follow through on it. And, and it, the thing is, is that we got a good reception took, from the court people, from the federal court. It took work on Friday and all day, practically all day Saturday. Well, I think we probably put in 20 hours a piece on it. And there are people who just don't want to give that amount of, much time. Enough. Well, they don't even think of it. I mean, he reads it and right away he knows that that's not right. <laughs> it shouldn't be. And he wants to change it. And so he did. Anyway, uh, that's, that's easy thank bridge. You. Well, thank you. For did you tell that. the rest of the story about the children of Mississippi? 
Oh. In terms of the church and the minister and all that. No, I'm not going to tell that. <laughs> well, we'll wait till she comes back and then she'll have you tell it. She had down here Pope's cafeteria. Right, that was uh, Mr. Pope himself in person. Uh, who we talked to and uh, he said, you know, he said, maybe we can do something with this testing program of yours. He said, what I want you to do is line up your Negroes. He said, I want a very light-skinned one to come in first and then a little darker and a little darker and a little darker. And he said, after three or four months, we can get somebody that's pretty dark in. <laughs> that was Lou Gilman on the phone. So you want to talk to me? I told him after you. Anyway. He wants to talk to me about this case. Do you want to go do that? No, no I told him he'd call later. I'll call. Okay. Uh, but anyway, that was Pope's approach to the thing, uh, and uh, that really didn't work too well. Did Did it make? Tell me about that. Did it make a difference if a person was lighter skinned? I doubt it. In those days. Uh, oh, I think it might have, uh, in terms of general acceptance. Hell, the sorority Marion belonged to would only accept light-skinned Negroes for a long time, and Marion went in and broke the color line there. Uh, you know, there's a difference between the house servants and the field servants, and which carried over into the sorority. The servants were out in the sun, and so they were dark. And the house servants were inside, they didn't get the suntan. I, I ran into a, a, um, a man, uh, a white man, that was on the Urban I ran into him in Schnucks the other day and I said, come sit down and talk to me for a minute and then tell me. And he and I have had now numerous conversations over the phone and just put me on to some people to talk to. But he said in 1942 he wanted to hire a Negro and he called the Urban League before he was in Bob's house, yes sir. And they sent him out, someone very light. And he said, no, he didn't. He said to the woman, it's not you, but he said, if I'm going to do it, then I'm going to do it. And I don't want someone very light. And so he said he hired someone. They sent out somebody else, but mm -hmm. that was their approach. That sounds like Gene Poole. <laughs> um, all right, Marion also had, <laughs> we talked about the election of the first black alderman. Right. Okay. Uh, political activities, voter registration. You know, we did all those things. Uh, and first of all, we were trying to get the Board of Alder. I explained that we were passed the Public Accommodations Bill. That's how we And, you know, as part of the program, we even went into the boards where the balance was tipping in terms of housing and did a real registration job. We would uh, canvas a block and fill up a car with people and take them down to the board election questions because at that time that's the only way you could register them and then bring them back and mm -hmm. we would do that we'd get three or four cars or five cars or something like that and take block by block by block and we would send people down ahead of time to knock on the doors and the cars would come by and the person who was ready would pick them up and take them and so we registered a lot of people that way and I think that that and then People who were politically inspired also got interested, and once they got interested, they could see the possibilities of there winning something. They then did a lot of registrations themselves, mm -hmm. and 
they were very effective at it. And as I said, we were able to tip the balance in the 21st and the 20th and the 26th wards. And you were still meeting every Tuesday night? Oh, yeah, we met every Tuesday night. You couldn't engage all that activity without having meetings Complete and plannings direction. and deciding who's going to go where and who's going to do what. I think the significant thing is the security core and all of the, it was a very fine group, and uh, I don't suppose we ever had over maybe 25 or 30 active members uh, during this period of time. But they were all, they all got along fine together. It was a well-mixed group in terms of race, a well-mixed group in terms of class, and The, it must have been so exciting. Well, it was an exciting experience, and uh, it was a very good experience. And I think everybody enjoyed it, and it was something they could all participate in. And it was time for some victories. Mm -hmm. And then some victories came. Mm -hmm. and they weren't fast coming, but they came. And uh, by the time the 60s rolled around, uh, the entire country was ready for a change. And I think that's pretty much what happened. We have your 59 bond election. Oh, there was a uh, election. One of the interesting elections occurred when they were talking about combining the city and the county. And I think that was in 1954. Anyways, the year you went off to Mexico. 59. Was it 59? Okay. Uh, there was a great effort to combine the city and county. And all the powers that we had gotten together and said this is the way it's going to be. And they changed the entire structure of the city and the wards and so on and so forth, so that forever and on the control of the joint government would be in the hands of the white uh, group. And uh, so I remember David Grant was the minority person on the uh, Board of Freeholders. And nobody else was speaking. Nobody else was speaking out against the proposed um, combination of the St. Louis County and the city. And so there were three of us that got together, sort of on our own. All the three of them happened to be involved in the court. It was Marvin Rich, Joe Ames, and myself. And we issued some press releases. And the names of core, and we printed up thousands of leaflets and uh, distributed them throughout the entire community. And we didn't make a racial thing. Well, uh, Jordan Chambers uh, was opposed to it. Fred Weathers was opposed to it, and Dave Grant, etc. So that there was a substantial core group. I mean. Uh, group that was opposed to it. Mm -hmm. and uh, But all the publicity and all the uh, newspaper coverage and television and radio was all in favor of the combination of the joinder of the city and the county. But lo and behold, when they came to vote on it, their people rose up and said no. And uh, so we were very active in that project and I think perhaps provided the impetus which led to the defeat of the thing. And certainly we were very instrumental in it. Now I have 
Charles Walgreens. Walgreens. What was the name of the man that you dealt with in New York? Oh, that was... That, that was Woolworth. Well, we had Woolworth and uh, Kresge's. No, but the, the... You see, Kresge's was in Detroit. No, but there was a man that you worked with for a long period of time in New York, I believe. And I'm not sure it was Woolworth. Okay. No, it wasn't Walgreens. It was uh, Woolworth. And, uh, I can't think of his name. I can't think of his name either, but uh, he he was from the main office, which I believe was in New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, I told her a little bit about that, some of the things we did with Woolworth. Uh, but he would...